Last week we were taking a look at the end of the end times. And we were looking at some scripture references relative to the main event. Which is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming is referred to so liberally in Christendom, isn't it? We talk about the second coming of Christ, and I think that we've even learned a little bit that, that really for believers, the second coming is indeed very triumphant, and yet, and yet our victory is in the gathering. As Christ comes to gather us before the tribulation period, we are going to be gathered up unto him and we are going to be whisked away, if you will, not to have to go through this tribulation period. And, uh, and, and that should mean something to us. That should mean something to us. And yet Jesus returns triumphantly to do what? Establish his kingdom. Establish his kingdom. And the, one of the first things that he does when he comes is defeats the enemy. So there has been this there has been this tension for a really long time since the garden. There has been this tension. And Jesus comes in victory and in triumph and he defeats the Antichrist and then he gathers whom? Israel. He gathers Israel. There's this class of people, these chosen people that we often refer to, don't we, when we, when we study especially the Old Testament and even the New Covenant. We think about the Israelites as being so stubborn and disobedient until, I like to say, we look in the mirror and God reveals to us that we are them mm -hmm. in our stubbornness and our disobedience. Uh, we, we are them. But God has set aside the Israelites. There will be a remnant. And when Christ comes, the full number of Gentiles will have been taken up. And the Israelites are going to be restored. And what is that restorative process going to include? When God restores the remnant of the Jewish population when he comes... What does that include? Judgment. It includes judgment for sure. Who's he going to judge? Israel. He's going to judge the living. That's and that's Israel included. Okay. And what else is Jesus going to do in terms of restoring? Israel. What else happens at the second coming of Christ? He defeats the enemy. What happens with the enemy? Keep going. For a thousand years. Oh, for a thousand years. That becomes pretty important because uh, last week I was suggesting that there are some that don't believe that the thousand years is a literal thousand years. I happen to believe a I'm, I happen to be a literalist myself. In fact, the support for a literal thousand years is quite evident when you look at, at the book of Revelation itself. Forget all of the prophets. Just look at the book of Revelation that talks about the thousand year reign of Christ. And six different times in Revelation, God himself, through John the Revelator, okay, who, who wrote the book of Revelation, says 1,000 years 
He never said a long period of time, or he never made reference to something that was vague and ambiguous, as sometimes happens in Scripture, right? Because there are mysteries in Scripture where it's not totally revealed, and we get to debate that, and we're made stronger about those kinds of things. But in any event, God, God literally used the term 1,000 years multiple times, which leads me to believe that it's a literal 1,000 years. And we could argue and not debate. I mean, we could debate and not not divide over that, but nonetheless, I believe it's a literal period of time. And so he binds Satan for a thousand years. And then what what does he do? What else does he do when he comes? We had a whole list last week. He restores the earth back to perfection. There is his earthly kingdom and a restoration that takes place. It's a fascinating thing. So on the earthly kingdom side of what uh, God's word has revealed to us that is going to happen when Christ comes. What does that mean? He also eliminates sin. He eliminates sin. Well, we're going to take a look at that. Because does he? Yeah, because he removes Satan and then he, Satan can't. Oh, we're going to look at some good stuff to see what that really means. We're going to look at that tonight because that's important. Because there is a restoration of the earth. Because remember what happens... Remember what happens. We have a seven-year tribulation period and we have the three different kinds of judgments, right? All the judgments of God, the ultimate judgment, the bold judgments are really against Satan. And we see that at the end of that period of time, the earth is decimated. And, and it's, it's, it's horrific. As he, also, these, he also brings everybody back from heaven. Too. He brings, we saw last week, that who does, he, who does Jesus bring with him? An army, and and specifically the army is us. And how many of us is he bringing? All. And did I hear somebody else say also the angels? And how how many of them? Yeah, he says all the angels. So heaven is going to be a, a pretty empty place. And and really, when you stop and think about it, heaven is empty because when Christ comes, he comes. You're absolutely right. He comes as a warrior. He comes to defeat the enemy. He comes to complete what was prophesied. Where? In the book of Genesis. Initially, in the book of Genesis, it said that, that Jesus is going to is going to what? <laughs> defeat. What's the what? Remember what the analogy is? Who's he going to defeat? Well, we know it's Satan, the serpent. He's going to defeat the serpent, which is another word for for Satan himself, which is what he does, of course. And so he established himself as king of kings and lord of lords on the earth. Jesus himself then becomes the king. Well, we already know that, don't we? Jesus is the king. And he is our lord. And he is the lord. And he defeats the enemy. And so the earth then changes dramatically in this restorative, hard to get out too, in this restorative process. So in the redemption of his creation, who created the heavens and the earth? Uh huh. Who all was there in the process? Amen. And so here we have Jesus, God in the flesh. Let us make them in our image. Okay? Let us make him in our image. And so so Jesus 
is on the earth. Think about it this way. It is his creation and it is restored. And there is quite a bit of, of evidence biblically that there will be some supernatural restoration that takes place immediately and that there will also be some rest restoration that takes place over time. It's interesting. There is some mystery associated with uh, because it's are we in heaven at this point? No, it's not heaven. There is no new heaven and there's no new earth. This is the earth. It's the same place where the tribulation period just took just just concluded. The enemy was defeated and there was death and the oceans were contaminated and there was and they were they were polluted and there's no fresh water and there's you know, most of the grass and the trees are burned up. And yet Jesus comes and there is a restoration that takes place. And so many believe that there is an immediate restoration upon Jesus' return to the earth. And there is some support for that, although we're not told specifically. Why else does he come? Why does Jesus come? To rule and reign on the earth, which is his. To rule and reign on the earth. Well, he has to fulfill prophecy, too. Ah, there is an expectation of fulfilled prophecy because all prophecy before has been fulfilled up to that point. Is the prophecy that has been fulfilled when Jesus returns done? Not yet. We're not done yet. But he comes to redeem the creation, to restore his creation, okay, to reward his faithful... There's a reward at this particular place because there is going to be a reigning on the earth with Christ as king. It's kind of like a benevolent dictatorship, if you will, but with the kind of dictator that we want. <laughs> Some people would think about it as a theocracy and other people would think of, I don't have a problem with a dictatorship, quite frankly. I, I even in my own life today, like to think of it that way because... Um, because if, if I'm doing it his way, I'm, I'm on the right track. <laughs> I, I wish I was on the right track more than I am. But, um, but he dictates and mandates, and it's my job to be obedient. And it's going to be a, it's going to be a beautiful restorative process when he's here. And so then God completely fulfills the covenant with Israel. We talked about that. So Jesus comes and the covenant is fulfilled. Which covenant is fulfilled? Specifically, which covenant is fulfilled? What happens with the, with the Jews when Christ comes? The remnant that is saved. What is the prophecy that is fulfilled when Christ comes? 144,000? No. Is that the Davidic covenant? Ah, uh, okay. Which is? There will be a throne Christ, forever. Christ will reign on the throne forever. That's correct. Because what's going to happen is Christ will never not be on the throne from this point forward. Okay. And what else was promised? What else was promised that has that had yet to be to be fulfilled until Christ comes? Gathering of the Jews. The gathering of the Jews, and specifically, what else? Mm -hmm. They're going to be gathered, and what else? Pardon me? His kingdom, on earth. His kingdom on earth, but specifically to the Jews and specifically what God promised that has not been fulfilled yet, that is going to be fulfilled during this thousand year reign of Christ. Abraham is a clue. <laughs> what did God promise Abraham? 
That there would be a lot of people, and that's great. So we got this covenant of people, places, and things. I'm helping you as much as I can here. All nations would be blessed. Through whom? Through Abraham. That's key. Because as we see Christ return and as we see this covenant, we think of it as the new covenant. It's a no-brainer for us. But the Jews don't, do they? The Jews have rejected Jesus, haven't they? And so they are struggling through this new covenant, all except those Messianic Jews that we know and love. They're, they are struggling through this, and yet God saves a remnant of the Jews. And he, at this particular point during this thousand-year reign, ah, he completes the covenant. He brings the Jewish nation into the new covenant. And he fulfills the promise the, uh, to, to Abraham. He is going to give them their land. Where is this? It's a very specific place. That tiny little place of dirt that's over there in the Middle East. That, that most people don't think is very important except for Jews and Christians. Uh -huh. In Jerusalem. Where is Christ going to sit on the throne? In Jerusalem. Where is Christ going to reign from? Jerusalem. Where is Jerusalem? Israel. Is that going to change when Jesus comes? No. No. I'm talking about the. Jerusalem and a new Jerusalem. So which Jerusalem are you speaking of? I'm talking about the specific place. The old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem don't change geographically during the thousand year reign of Christ. It is the same place. What we're talking about here is the covenant that is made with the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, the Israelites, and what is going to happen during this period. That's and so they, the new yeah. Jerusalem, what does the Bible refer to as the new Jerusalem? What specifically is the new Jerusalem? And okay, and so that holy city that comes out of, of that comes out of heaven. When does that happen? Hmm. Oh, well, that's really interesting because we have a new heaven and a new earth, don't we? Mm -hmm. Is the new Jerusalem during the thousand-year reign of Christ? I would make a note on my sheet if I were you for an area of further study, perhaps. <laughs> because that's a good question, isn't it? Oh, it's after the millennial reign. Hmm. That's a great area for further study. That might be a lookup. <laughs> that might be a lookup. Because what happens is Christ comes to Jerusalem, this very important place, and the fulfillment of the prophecy for the Jews takes place there because he, they are given their land. They are given the, uh, the, the, the promise of Abraham that all peoples would be blessed. What's happening during the millennial reign of Christ? All peoples are blessed. So let's see what happens in terms of this fulfillment when God forgives the sins of Israel. What? God forgives... The sins of Israel. Just like yours and mine. God is a God of grace. He's a God of love. He is a God of promises. And He is a God of fulfillment of those promises. Not a one promise that God has ever made will go unfulfilled. 
not a one. And the, and the descendants of Abraham will be blessed. Will be blessed. The thousand year reign of Christ is an amazing period that looks very similar to heaven. And yet it's not. Let's look forward a little bit. As Jesus is reigning and the sins of Israel are forgiven, the remnant is saved, who is on the earth? That's a question. Who's on the earth? The believers that survive through the, all the tribulation. Okay. The Jews that, uh-huh. that survive. Uh-huh. Us. Uh-huh. I guess it's angel, king, do they say? That's a good question, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm. And yeah. Oh, well, Jesus is here, for sure. There's got to be some there's got to be some unbelievers. How are the unbelievers? How are there unbelievers on the earth during the thousand-year reign of Christ? They're born. Huh? They're born. Yeah, you see, because there are redeemed and unredeemed people on the earth at this time. Because there are those that are on the earth that are believers, right? Because they didn't have the mark of the beast. They were not destroyed. And yet they are remaining on the earth because they were not caught up. They are tribulation saints. And we saw last week that in Isaiah it suggests clearly, it's not a suggestion, it, it, is, an absolute, um, it is an absolute truth that those people will live in their unredeemed bodies, they will not be glorified bodies, and there will be a plethora of them, as we will see later, and they will have children, and not all of their children will be believers. Okay, the question is... Yes. If all sin is gone, isn't that a sin of them not believing? Who said all sin was gone? I thought you said that earlier. No, I didn't say that. Steve said that. <laughs> <laughs> I heard somebody. Okay. I just, I just want to be clear. I, I don't want to say who's right or wrong. Or not. What I want to say is, what, what does the Bible say? Don't always listen. They don't have any opportunity to sin. Let's look at that. They're not tempted because Satan's not here to tempt Let's first scripture reading for the night. Turn to Jeremiah, somebody. Jeremiah seventeen nine. Because one of the other purposes of the thousand year reign of Christ, clearly in Scripture, is to is to clearly and finally, finally reveal and reaffirm what the total depravity of mankind. Okay, Jeremiah seventeen nine. Whoever's there first and wants to. The there. heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Yeah. I like the New King James Version uh, the best of all that I of all the translations that I that I looked at. And it says the heart is deceitful above all things. Think about those words. The heart is deceitful. That's an inheritance that we all got. Our heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked. Who can even know it? Who can know it? There will be people that are born on the earth during the thousand year reign of Christ that are in their mortal bodies. We will not be. We will be in our glorified bodies. 
But there will be mortals on earth that are born that fall under the Jeremiah 17, 9 condition. They will be no different than us. Is there sin during the thousand year reign of Christ? It has to be. Because if they don't believe that's disobedience, that's a sin. Hmm. Okay, we'll look at that in a minute. Okay. What will we be doing with Christ during a thousand years? Digging a ditch. Reigning. We will be reigning with Christ. What does that mean? We'll have jobs. You can't be a nurse. I don't know. Okay. The scripture, the scripture says that we will reign with Christ. Think about that for a minute. We are reigning with Christ. Think about that as you sit in a pew in this beautiful little country church in this little town of Ojai, California in 2014, where we come out of reverence to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And He is going to come and get us and then bring us with Him to the earth to reign with Him. And then the Bible goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 6 that we will be judges. Huh. Nurse to judge. <laughs> we will judge who? The angels. Who else? The twelve tribes of Israel, the Bible says. Who else? Yes. The whole world. The believers will reign with Christ and we will sit in just judgment. That's Christ's just, righteous judgment over the angels. Now, that isn't mind-boggling to y'all. Okay? That's, hard to, that's hard to grasp, is it not? As we live in our mortal bodies, in this physical world, and yet we are going to be redeemed to our, to our immortal bodies, unperishable, Christ-like, without sin, to reign with Christ and sit in judgment over angels, Israel, and the world for a thousand years. Whoa. That's what the Bible says. But then in Revelation 20, verse 4, mm-hmm. it says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or the image and had not received his mark on their foreheads. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Then down in verse 7 it says, When the thousand years was over, Satan will be released. And then in verse 11 it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
Virgin skies fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that in them. So how can this be during the thousand years, then? How can what be during the thousand years? The great white throne of judgment. How can the great... Well... We're not done. Judgment is not finished. Okay. Judgment is not finished. There is one final judgment at the end of the millennial reign. Okay. Okay. And there is, it's a fascinating study, by the way, that we don't have time to go into tonight. But if you take a look at the, the, the some, some theologians would say, or commentators would talk about the first resurrection and the second resurrection in terms of timing. And there's a great deal of interesting study that can be done relative to the difference between the theological approach between the first and the second resurrection. But I would leave it with you this way, in light of time, that, that there, there, are, uh, there are sequential and chronological events that take place that are very clear. Sometimes we might have the chronology a, a little bit backwards because we don't know exactly we know what God's plan is, and we know it's going to happen, but sometimes there's debate within Christendom in terms of when these events actually do take place chronologically. And so, the first resurrection, were you resurrected? No. No, wait. Were you, were, if you, if you die today, and, and the rapture happens um, uh, Friday afternoon? Yes. yes. Next Friday? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're not answering that question, but I want to make my point. <laughs> Is there going to be... The dead in Christ are resurrected, okay, and we are taken up into, okay, and whether you're alive or... So I, I take it you want to be alive um, during the rapture? That's fine with me. I'm okay with that. Okay. If it's this afternoon, if it's this evening, I'm okay. All right. I'm just saying that theologically, uh, we have to take a look at um, at the first and the second resurrection in terms of when God is going to enjoin all of the saints together. Right. That's all. Okay. okay. And enough said for that because that's a, that's a whole study in and of itself which is very interesting. Very interesting. And so uh, having said that we know that what our role is going to be during the thousand year reign because what's going to happen is the curse is going to be removed from the earth. Right? Isaiah chapter 35. The curse is going to be removed from the earth and that there will be redeemed and unredeemed people on the earth. Okay? Believers will be redeemed, but there will definitely be unredeemed. Okay? We're going to get to the sin issue in just a second here. And so they are going to be in their mortal bodies and subject to, to the Jeremiah problem. Okay? Which is what? Desperately wicked and and their heart is deceitful. Okay? But what happens to those people? Supernaturally at this point, even the unredeemed people are going to live for a very long period of time. We saw that last week in Isaiah 65, 20, where um, where God's word says that if a man that's euphemistically for a person, if a man were to die at a hundred, it would con- be considered to be extremely young. Very young. Most people believe that we are going to go back to the time of, 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 of 
Noah, for example, where people are going to live a long time. I find this fascinating because I, that's what the Bible says. It says we're going to live a long time and there isn't going to be any sickness during the thousand year reign. Which means that the unredeemed, the unsaved, the people that are on the earth that even haven't received Christ as Lord could be living for the entire millennium. The Bible nowhere says that there won't be death. The Bible does say that people will live a long time and that children that would be normative to unfortunately die in childbirth today won't, won't happen. That leads us to believe logically that we have to look at this thousand year reign of Christ as a period of time where there will be procreation and there will be, not by us, but by those that are unredeemed and there will be many children and I don't know about you, I can't do the math in my head, but that means for a thousand years there will be a lot of people on the earth that are going to be multiplying. There are going to be a lot of people in their mortal bodies on the earth during this thousand year period, especially up to the thousand year period. If none of them die. Think about that. That's a good question. Does anything change in God's plan if an unredeemed soul dies during the thousand year reign of Christ? His plan is already in place. There's no biblical evidence to suggest that anything is any different. There's one way to God. Whether it is before or after Christ comes. Will there still be decay? What kind of decay? Well, if your body dies, it decays. I mean, if it was left out there. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know. I know that death will be rare. And I know that people are going to live for a long time. That's all I know, because that's what the Bible says. That's what I know. And I know there will be unredeemed, unregenerate, deceitful, wicked people on the earth during this period of time. No? Yes? If, if they're living a long time, and we've got people that are begging God to die, that's not necessarily a good thing. Well... Let's see what the Bible says about why there is going to be tremendous peace and prosperity. Not only will God remove sickness, that's Isaiah chapter 29, there won't be sickness. Sorry, all the doctors and the nurses are going to have to find something else that God is going to have to gift them to do during the millennium because there is not going to be sickness. It's going to be, parrot. what's the word? It's going to be like paradise. I was going to say paradoxical, but that means something entirely different. <laughs> it is going to be like paradise because God is going to remove blindness. There will be no blindness. There will be no deafness. There will be none of that. Health will be restored for the entire millennium. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. That's right. Did you hear that, Tim? Nothing will hurt. <laughs> That's good news, isn't it? Leave it to Joanne Moore. That's right. You'll be able to sit and not have to get up and walk around because you're hurting. That's good news. There will be prosperity for all. <clears throat> 
right? No. no. Oh. <laughs> we'll have sufficient. Each, each person will have sufficient since each man will have his own grapevine and palm tree or... Yeah, the Bible says, we saw the scripture reference last week, if you look on the 3,700 scripture references I have in your handout last week, one of them is going to suggest to you that the prosperity means that we will have everything we need, including the unredeemed, we will have everything that we need physically, materially, and spiritually. Everything will be just what we need. Not one. Because right now, we have a struggle in our sin nature. The difference between... There's a fine line, isn't there, between need and want? There is a very fine line. And we, of most peoples around the world, struggle with that because of our wealth. Okay? But, the Bible says during the thousand year reign of Christ, everybody, even the unredeemed, will have just what they need. So the utopia that everybody has been searching for is it's, there it is. Just don't take the mark of the beast and you got it. And even if you're born, there will be no mark of the beast if you're born in the millennium. And we're going to see how that works in a minute. You know, Jesus, I'm oh, sorry. It's amazing how much of this end times reflects back to Israel uh, leaving Egypt. Isn't the parallel fascinating? I mean, the, the one thing in there that you have in here in uh, Zechariah, which I was wondering about, is it says that he parts Mount Olive and you walk through it just like in a sea. Oh. And it says that you go have everything you need, which in the desert they just got what they needed. But a lot of it goes back to you. It seems to me, in my mind. And it, it, very much so. There is a parallel there that is very uncanny. And so the difference is the people. Because what happens is, is we have a different time and where God provided for the Israelites when they were so disobedient in the desert and he made them wander around out there for 40 years, but he gave them everything they needed. And when they complained, and I, yeah, yeah, I can see God rolling eyes in the back of his head, and he, and he, gave, them, he gave them what they asked for, even in their disobedience. And he provided for them and he continued and, he con and he's never stopped. He's never stopped. He's never stopped. He's never stopped for them or us. And the same thing is happening here during the thousand year reign of Christ. Everything is redeemed as it was supposed to be. But it's not heaven. <coughs> Many misconceptions about that. We have a thousand year reign. The earth is... Ojai will be here. <coughs> It'll be here. And I don't know where you're going to be. Or I'm going to be. Maybe I'll be here. I don't know. We're not told. But we know that Jesus is going to institute also a perfect world government and that righteousness will prevail on the earth. Isaiah 60. There will be no disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on the throne during the thousand year reign of Christ. So there is no sin. Don't listen to Steve. <laughs> well, mine, mine says that they will, they will rule, they will rule. First Diane, chapter 6. First Diane. First Diane, <laughs> chapter 6, verse 12 says, There will be no sin. I don't think that your book, I don't think yours made it into the canon of Scripture. Though, because I, I don't know, will there be sin? Yes. Righteousness will prevail. Holiness will prevail. 
There will be no, Scripture says in Isaiah, there will be no disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ who sits on the throne. None. No men were born into sin. Except for those people that God accepted. Okay, work this out. (laughs) (laughs) Don't confuse those that have glorified bodies that are with him to those who are there to make new choices. Amen, sister. What we have is we have a very interesting situation because we have an earth that is that where Christ and his followers, his faithful are reigning and righteousness and holiness and justice prevail from the from the redeemed because they are reigning with Christ and yet there are unredeemed that are restrained it's the same who was the restrainer that we talked about earlier okay the Holy Spirit is alive and well during the thousand year reign of Christ and the Holy Spirit just as the Holy Spirit precluded some of the apostles from going where they wanted to go and scripture tells us but the Holy Spirit restrained us from going there. There had to have been a reason. Okay? And so the Holy Spirit will restrain any outward appearance of sin. Back to Jeremiah. What's the condition of the unredeemed heart? Wicked and deceitful. Wicked and deceitful. And yet, for a thousand years, righteousness Holiness and obedience. That's the key. Obedience to Jesus will prevail. I'm telling you, I'm in. I want to buy the ticket for that. Amen? We are talking about full obedience. That's an obedience that we desire and yet we can't achieve. Because we have we have that nature. We have that nature. We're unable to do any of that in our in our strength, right? We can't do anything in our own strength. And so the Holy Spirit will restrain the sin that will be on the earth in the unredeemed for a thousand years. So instead of saying sin, uh, what, if, what if you said is, is that uh, during that thousand years... That nature is going to be gone? No. It's still going to be there? No, the nature is going to be there. It will be held in check. The Holy Spirit will restrain. Steve, there will be unredeemed people in their mortal bodies that you are going to have responsibility for in some sense. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah and Wes and Olivia and Susan and Thelma but it isn't everybody it isn't everybody everybody's not going to be chomping at the bit to want to be wicked because no. only be a few a few? yeah out of the millions and billions of people that will be born, there'll be a few thousand. Make a note about that. Mm-hmm. And before we're done, I'm going to challenge you. Okay. But where are you going to get the idea of wickedness of, of Satan? Well, remember Jesus said, or God said, that 
Just doing a sin didn't make it a sin. He holds you accountable for what's in your mind and your heart. And even though in this millennial, these people are able to keep it in their minds and in their heart and they are acting upon it, it is still sin. But there's no Satan to put it there anymore. Satan doesn't put the sin there. Man. No, he puts the temptation. But the apple, Satan didn't fight the apple. Satan is the tempter. Where is Satan during this period of time? He's bound. No, he's not there. He is bound. And the Holy Spirit is is filling every redeemed person on the planet during this period of time. Everybody that is redeemed is filled with the Spirit. And the earth is filled with God's Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will restrain any outward manifestation of the deceit and evilness that is in the heart of those that don't accept Christ even during the wedding. It will not be allowed to be let out. Right. Which means that there will be a paradise from a from a Christian point of view. Okay, <laughs> If you're a believer on Jesus Christ and you hold to the authority of Scripture in terms of what heaven is going to look like, this will resemble heaven. Because there will be no sin that is allowed to manifest, but it will be in the heart of the unredeemed. All of them. Not some. Everyone that is born, that is unredeemed, is going to have a sin nature that is not allowed to be manifest. So we will not see anybody ripping you off. So that there, you're okay. not going to see sin, but people will... Be sinful. Possess it in be, them. That is correct. Their hearts yes. will be deceitful. They will be born that way, okay. just like you were. Right, that, that's what I'm saying. There won't be then, visible sin. That means they won't have any opportunity to accept Christ then. Is that what that means? Every single person that's born is condemned. Who, who said that they were condemned? Well, what we're talking about is that every person that is unredeemed will have a sinful heart. That sin nature will still exist. Are you redeemed? Of course. Do you have a sin nature? Of course. Ah. That's where Paul says, I, I do what I don't want to do. Yeah. That's now we're talking about a, uh, we're talking about a, a slightly different dispensation here because we're talking about a thousand year reign of Christ where there are redeemed and unredeemed never happened before and there are people that are going to be born with a sin nature and there will be others y'all will be there without a sin nature you're not even going to remember your sin nature and you're not even going to see the sin nature that is in the unredeemed because it will be contained and restrained. Okay? Right, yeah. So there will be no need. Tyler will be out of a job too. No cops. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying. Or car about. salesman. By no, by no, no sin is nobody's going out and sin. That's right. Because holiness and faithfulness will prevail. There will be no room for sin. That's in Joel and Zechariah. Hers, um, uh, Joel 3 and Zechariah 8. And, of course, we also know that during this period of time, we know this scripture almost by heart. None of us know where it is. I have to look it up, too. And that is that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. How is that going to happen with the unredeemed? Well, they do it in obedience. It'll be the same as churches that are filled with people... That when Christ comes, some of them will be left sitting in the pew. 
These are things that should change our life. There will be churches, if Christ comes, wouldn't surprise me in the least, <laughs> although churches meet at different times because of the time changes, but if Christ came on a Sunday, a Sunday morning, it wouldn't surprise me at all for many to be left in the pews wondering, oh my gosh. Well, that's because they don't believe in Jesus. They have. And they won't receive Jesus. They haven't received Jesus. They, they, they have not confessed with their mouth. Okay? Their heart is not right. They think they are. Oh, some, maybe. Maybe some. not. I'm sure there would be all kinds of variations on that theme. The point is... They have. The point is... Some will be left. And yet, during the millennium, every knee will bow. Even the unredeemed. That are sinful, but not outwardly sinning. Because they are restrained. Think about it this way. Everybody goes to church in the millennium. Every Sunday, you know the 10 or 15% of the people in this whole valley that will be, be in a church this coming Sunday? If it were the millennium... A hunt, there would every house would be empty, and you wouldn't be locking your doors because there's no sin is allowed. So nobody's going to rip you off. Okay, the dog is not going to bite anybody. That's not going to happen. And everybody would be in church. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm saying that that's the that's the graphic to give you the example. Even those that have not accepted Christ during this time. All right. We're all going to have something to do. We're going to reign, we're going to govern, and we are going to lead. And is that, by the way, is that with or for Christ? With. with. Is there a difference? Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a big difference. You know, uh, Richie's been preaching lately about the, about, uh, you know, I love sermon titles. And I love sermon titles on the front of the, of the bulletin, you know, and, 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 and last week had something to do with pronouns, and we learned a little something about pronouns. What we mostly, I mean prepositions, what we, what we learned mostly is that people didn't know what it is. <laughs> Me too. And so uh, the difference between in and, yeah, and, and here, reigning with or reigning for, no, it says reigning with. It's very, very clear. But we will be reigning with Christ. By the way, we'll be building houses during this period of time. Because, Brenda, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus is preparing a place for us? You know, I know he is. Yeah, of course he is. Of course he is. Sure he is. But, there, but not yet. So during this period of time, I think the 65-21 clearly says that we're going to be building houses. We're, there's going to be carpenters. I don't know what the building material is going to look like on a redeemed earth. I don't know if we're going to be cutting. I don't know if we're going to be cutting any trees down. But I know that we're going to be building houses because the the, uh, the Bible tells us so. We also know that Jerusalem is going to be the political center of the earth. And so we also know that this isn't heaven, right? It's not heaven. Sounds like it though, doesn't it? Doesn't the thousand year reign of Christ sound a lot like heaven? Except it comes to an end. Oh, what happens? You've been reading. I love it. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. It's like the Garden of Eden. 
it's kind of like the Garden of Eden because during the thousand year reign there's going to be plenty to eat nobody's going to go hungry even the unredeemed there's going to be rain for irrigation we looked at that last week the Bible's real clear it is going to be very different than, than what it looks like today as the curse is removed and yet it's not heaven Revelation 20 chapter 7 uh, verse 7 and 8 Somebody. Now in a thousand years it expires, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together them together to battle, whose number isn't as the sand of the sea. Okay. We had a question earlier about the redeemed and the unredeemed and that, that there won't be very many. But Scripture says in Revelation 20, verse 8, that Satan is going to be released and he is going to gather who? Who is he going to gather? Them. them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, perfect. Go on. Who are the them? <coughs> Excuse me? He is going to gather the unredeemed. And how many unredeemed are there going to be in the millennial period? Because they were all redeemed when Christ came. Now, I don't know about you. But when the Bible uses this kind of graphic language the graphic being that the number of those that Satan is going to bring to by the way where are they going to go? To Jerusalem. to Jerusalem they are going to boy this sounds like the invasion that started the whole tribulation and they are going to number like the sand of the seashore because those are the people that are unredeemed, rebellious rejectors of God that are going to buy in to Satan. They never, ever, ever <coughs> got past their deceitful hearts and they joined. There will be so many of them, they will number like the sand of the seashore. Almost, that means a lot. It almost sounds like everyone that was living through the thousand years. That's a stretch. I mean, that's an interesting comment. How many of them are there going to be? We don't know. Is this the first time that God's word uses the analogy of there being so many people that they can't be counted because they're like the sand of the sea? No, many times in Scripture, there are many opportunities that God uses to reveal that this will be a significant number. It's like multitude, the word multitude. Think multitudes. I don't know. It might be interesting. Maybe you might want to make a note of this. How many people, if you started with 
I don't know how many people are going to be on the earth when Jesus comes. Let's just throw a wild guess out and say three billion. Maybe five. I don't know, maybe it's ten. It might be easier to do it with multiples of ten. Okay? So if there's ten billion people on the earth, how many of those were unredeemed? And then start doing a chart in terms of appropriation generationally. And then figure out how many people there will be on the earth after a thousand years. That's a big number. I don't know what it is, but it's a really, really big number. And, and this says that Satan is going to be let loose. And there will be many that follow him. What does verse 9 and 10 say? He marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loved. The fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, when we when we study, we have we have Satan, and we have the beast, and we have the false prophet, and so when we look at these at these three entities in Scripture, we have to be clear which one Scripture is talking about. We know that Satan, what specifically does Revelation 20, 7 through 10 say? It says that Satan is going to be released. Because he is the one, Satan, was thrown into the abyss. Praise God that that's his plan. Satan was thrown into the abyss. And then he was released. He was released from the abyss, right? And then who was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur? Yeah, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. It's the same place. So, Scripture is suggesting nothing more than that, than the abyss, the pit, hell, if you will, where, where he was thrown is where he is going back. But the point of this is, what happens to Satan and his minions that march on Jerusalem to... Because what is Satan's sole intent and purpose? To be to, to be God and to and to destroy Jerusalem and Israel. Generally, all people, but specifically, he is at war with God and God's chosen people. That would include us. Any reason to think that there's going to be anything other than difficulty in your life relative to the spiritual battle that's going on around you when Satan hates you? At this very moment while we're sitting here. The rest of the time too. But really right now. And so what happens is, is that the false prophet then is... By the way, what happens to him? And all those that are marching with him? I wish Kathy Pagasat were here. so um, uh, Because she had a question that's been, that's been working me over for weeks now. And that is that question of... How could anybody not come to Christ under these conditions? We're talking about a thousand years of extended lifetime on a paradise with you all that are righteous, holy, 
and just, reigning with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and there is a redeemed earth that is producing at a rate that has never been seen before, and there is plenty for everybody, and love is going to is going to abound because God will be with us, and yet in Revelation twenty, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, what happens? That old bad heart comes out. But you could go back to saying like uh, when uh, how how could Satan in the first place uh, get thrown out of heaven? I mean. It's a similar thing. Mm. I mean, Satan rebelled against God, and it had to be glorious wherever he was. Isn't that interesting? But it's almost the same thing. Fellowship with God, and yet Satan went. <laughs> yeah. The unredeemed on the earth are going to have fellowship with God. For a thousand years, some of them. And they're going to go. <laughs> Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The key there is, who can understand that? Can you understand that? I can't understand that. I can't understand that. That is a mystery that is well beyond anybody's ability to explain. It's like the nature of God. I can read about it. I can believe it. I can worship that God. I don't understand it. That's a step of faith. Amen? It's in the book. Oh, it is written. It is written. And oh, aren't you so glad? Aren't you so glad that we have... Authority? Aren't you so glad that we that we are are given the opportunity to decide whether we would like to be redeemed, whether we would like to be obedient, whether we just want to accept Christ because we believe? I'm very, very thankful that God just allowed me to accept Jesus. I could have been someone that Amen. just kept on saying no. Amen. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul wrote a, a letter that talks specifically about this topic. Many, many, many years before it is going to happen. Sometimes you don't think about the Apostle Paul as being a prophet. You think about him as being an apostle, don't you? That's kind of his title. What did he say? What did God say through the Apostle Paul? In 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28. Let me just read it real quick. Then, whenever something starts with a then, it always means that there was something that he said right before that. After this stuff that Paul was talking about, the important thing is, he says, then the end will come. When he, who's the he? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, insert Jesus. 
when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Genesis. Takes you back to Genesis, doesn't it? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Oh, this whole sin thing is circling the drain, Steve. It's circling the drain. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. Now, listen. When he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. What does that remind you of in biblical history? Where Jesus, what did Jesus do and where did he do it and when did he do it to be completely subject to the Father? Calvary. Twice we see it in Scripture. Jesus, Father, if there's any other way. But then he followed that up with one of the most important things in Scripture for us to understand. But your will be done. But your will be done. Jesus reigns with us for a thousand years. If that's not mind-boggling enough for us to deal with... Because in our sin nature, we have a hard time with that, don't we? And yet God sees us as fully righteous. That's good news, isn't it? He sees us as fully righteous, and we will be fully righteous. Wow. And yet, Jesus, at the end of the millennial reign, what does he do? He gives it up to the Father. Because we are now about to enter eternity. Which is what? God's will. God's will is an eternity (coughs) with his people redeemed. Eternity means forever. And he will live with us. Right Back to the beginning. We have come full circle in God's redemptive plan that those that are going to live with him for an eternity, he is going to live with us for an eternity. Just as he designed it. Why? Because we want to. Because we have accepted the free gift where we will be reunited amen Mm -hmm. we will be reunited that is the complete plan of God's will his wrath is completed prophecy is completed all the utterances of this prophetic plan of God that started in Genesis is completed 
eternity for God's people. Those that chose to accept one way. You Christians are so narrow. But there is one way to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So is that what he gave us free will at the very beginning? Hmm. So he could do this circle and make it complete. And oh, Olivia, that is a debate that we will be having <laughs> until the Lord comes. Hmm. I've always wondered why Goku all this. He knows our heart before we're born. It sure seems like it, though, doesn't it? Books have been written on free will versus being chosen. And are they the same? Ooh, there's a 12-week study in and of itself. But the point is, it's God's will. I don't understand the mind of God. Nobody does. But that's his plan. And he revealed it to us. It is written. And it is glorious. Amen? So in light of all the things that we've learned, scratching the surface for the last 12 weeks, we've scratched the surface of the end times. We've just scratched the surface. And we have learned a lot, haven't we? We've learned that we're in the end times. We're in the end times. We've learned that the rapture is imminent. May not need surgery. <laughs> Don't know for sure. I'd plan on going ahead if I was <laughs> But it's imminent. We've, we've learned that we're going to be judged, right? Justly. Hmm. And so will everybody. We learned that we're the bride of Christ, that Israel is going to be invaded, that that is going to be the beginning of the tribulation, that the Antichrist is going to be revealed, that there will be judgment of God that will be just and righteous during that period of time. We see that God's wrath will be unleashed during that period of time. We see that Christ will come. We know what he's going to do when he gets here. We know that God does not want one. Not one to perish. And God is so patient, I know with me, and I'm pretty confident with you, that he does not want, want, not want to perish. And I don't know about you, but that gives me an idea of why it's taken so darn long. Because Olivia, he could have done this right from the beginning, couldn't he? Yet he does not want one. He wants everyone to have the opportunity. That's to come to Christ. So peculiar that he allows Satan to be unleashed again. For the total depravity of man to be revealed. I'm sorry, Bill, would you repeat that? For the total depravity of man to finally be revealed. Amen. Our righteousness <clears throat> cannot be attained through any one other than Christ. And there will be righteous and unrighteous on the earth at that time. And Satan is unleashed and the unrighteous, those that have sin in their heart, those that want to God, are going to be revealed. And then it will be over. It will be done. 
Jesus is going to say, Father, your will now be done. Then we'll have a new earth and a new heaven. Oh, that's eternity. <laughs> that's eternity. And so when we see all of these truths coming to pass, should that change our life? I can't hear the head shaking, but I see it. <laughs> so then the question is, how should that change our life? Greater heart for the unsaved. Man, amen. Are you kidding me? God doesn't want anyone to perish. And I don't know about you, but it, it says in Second Peter 3.11 to live holy and godly lives, which means that we should be, we should be, we should be Christ-like. He doesn't want anybody to perish. What are we going to do? I find it amazing that God has placed us in this geographic world. Do you know where we live? In Ojai. Do you know the spiritual depravity of this place? Holy cow! This is an unbelievable place. Yeah, but this is a unique place. Unlike anywhere else. Unlike anywhere else, the spiritual darkness that exists in this place is if, if you care to get to the bottom of it, it is it's horrible. I was talking to Brenda just a couple of weeks ago and she had an experience with somebody that she was trying to minister to and she was sharing Jesus and this man about chewed your head off, didn't he? Yeah. It, was, it was scary, wasn't it? And yet, I love this woman's heart. She boldly was just sharing the truth because this was an unredeemed person that just needed to know Jesus. That's all. That's all. And I'm telling you, in, a, in, a, in, in terms of percentages of per capita, this is a dark place. Why does God have us here? For His will to be done. What should we do? Yeah, we should be Brenda. <laughs> yeah. That's all you can do is share, share a little bit and God will take care of the rest. Amen, sister. Every dark place needs some light and that's why it's happening here in Ohio. First Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the work of the Lord because you know that the Lord that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Sharing will never be in vain. Let's not be pusiders. Let's do something. If this is meaningful, if God has spoken to you, let's do something. First Thessalonians 5, 6 says, So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Keep your eyes open. There, are, there is spiritual darkness out there. Live your life in such a way that it is godly, according to 2 Peter 3.11. Live holy and godly lives. And then ultimately, the one that gets taught around here all the time reminded me of a story yesterday. I flew to New Mexico yesterday with a guy that's, that I've never flown with before. <clears throat> and I was training him. It was kind of a weird story on a side. Um, it's a 45,000-hour pilot, Navy pilot, uh, member of the um, Tailhook Society. He used to land airplanes on, on boats out in the ocean, you know, those kind of guys. 
and uh, a lot of military experience, and then spent 30 years working for the airlines, and and, and I'm te- and I'm training him. It was really intimidating, but nonetheless, we're flying out to New Mexico, and he's a very godly man. He's also a chaplain on the Navy base, and so we we get out to to deliver Christmas toys to the Indian reservation, and we get all done, and there's a lineman out there, and we need to put fuel in the airplane, and so he does it, and he's really busy. This kid is really busy. He's the only guy there, and there's three or four airplanes, and he's running around, and his name is Nelson. We got we introduced ourselves, and his name is Nelson, and he's a Native American kid, probably about 25 years old, and Ted is the guy that I'm flying with, and and this is Ted. I, I just met him that morning, yesterday. I've never met him before. I'm flying with him for the first time, and here's Ted as it relates to the end times and what we should be doing. When we get done, because this kid helps us, because our the, the, the reservation people didn't get there in time to pick up the stuff, so we had to put it in a hangar, and this kid helped us carry these boxes of Christmas toys and gifts and all this stuff, a whole airplane full of it. I mean, there's boxes and boxes and boxes. And we got it over to the hangar, and Ted wants to thank Nelson. And he says, Nelson, thank you. He says, are you a Christian? <laughs> And Nelson's eyes got this big, and he said, well, no, I'm a... And Ted, without, without hesitating, he said, can we pray for you? I know, I, uh, okay. That's how it went. And so we put our arms around this kid who said he wasn't a Christian, and Ted prayed that he would receive Christ, and that, that God would be glorified, and that he would be blessed, and that his his uh, his season his Christmas season would be like no other and and this prayer was it was like like sixty seconds long and and we shook his hand and Nelson hugged him and then we walked away and my eyes were this big because I said why didn't I think of that and this was Ted Ted wasn't a pilot Ted was a man of God that understood the end times and that time is short and that somebody he met that he'd never seen before, he wanted to be able to introduce him to Jesus so that he might see him again. I learned that yesterday at the end of my end time study. The challenge then is, of course, James 1.22. I love it because Pastor Richard uses this all the time. Ingrained in our brain around here as, as OVC efforts, right? And that is, don't merely be listeners of the word. Be doers. So my encouragement after this end time study is take it and then pray and then do something with it because we know that the time is short. And we know that God wants everyone to be redeemed. He doesn't want one to be lost. And guess who gets the privilege of being his hands, in his feet, in his mouth? Us. Right here. In one of the darkest spiritual places, almost anywhere on a per capita basis. We're privileged enough to be like Brenda. Somebody that's not saved. Hey, you know, I just feel like I need to just tell you about Jesus. That's all. I just want to tell you. It's okay. And by the way, if you want to find out, you can just come to church. That's all you've got to do. And sometimes they might bite your head off. Other times they might come, huh, Brenda? He hasn't spoke to me since. Uh, He might. (laughs) That's right. What are we going to do? 
with what we know to live godly lives. You know, think heaven happened and then you'll see him in heaven and say, remember me? Oh, that's going to be glorious, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We're going to learn a lot there too, aren't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to learn a lot there too. Let's close the prayer. Father, we are humbled by the truth of your word. (coughs) And God, we understand that you, Lord, are the Alpha and the Omega. And Lord, that all of the prophetic utterances of your word, Lord, will come true. As most already have. We are confident, Lord, and beyond that confidence, Lord, we, again, are humbled, and yet, Lord, we are excited about the future as well. And so, God, I pray that you would reveal to us what our responsibility is in light of the imminence of the rapture that could take place at any time, your timing, Lord. Give us a heart for the lost, Lord. Lord, help us and teach us how to pray for them. Show us those, Lord, that we would come in contact with that just need to know you. And especially make that relevant at this time of year, God, where we celebrate, Lord Jesus, your birth which was so necessary as it was written. And God, as your people, Lord, we do indeed want to humble ourselves before you. We want to be obedient to your calling. We want your will to be done. And Lord, we want to seek your face in all things. So thank you for this study. Thank you for what you've revealed to us. Thank you, Lord, how you've spoken to us through your word. And Lord Jesus, we just want to tell you that we love you. We are especially grateful for what you have done, what you are doing, and Lord, what you will do. And Lord, we just want to continue to be obedient and be a part of your plan of redemption for the entire earth, Lord, as it is your will that all would be saved. So thank you, Jesus. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.